So they couldn't get enough of these mortgage bonds. Now, what does that have to do with construction, right? How do you connect that to the sort of materiality of the city and, you know, to the cranes and, uh, you know, dirt movers that you see? My name is Rachel Weber, and I'm a professor of urban planning and policy at the University of Illinois, Chicago, in the wonderful city of Chicago. Welcome to City Road, I'm Dallas Rogers, and yes, today we're talking to Rachel Weber. The city of Chicago is the third largest city in the United States. It's about three million people from the, in, the, in the city itself, and then about nine million people in the region, located on Lake Michigan, and, and very much a, a city that everybody looks to to define trends in other cities in the United States, particularly those that are not on the coasts. You've written a book called From Boom to Bubble, How Finance Built the New Chicago. Could you just sketch out for me the sort of story arc of that book? Sure. The story arc of the book is that the late 1990s, early 2000s were a time when the pace of construction activity really started picking up in the city and continued all the way through and even past the financial crash in 2007-2008. And the motivation for the book is really trying to understand why, given that employment and population were quite flat and in fact declining over this time in the city of Chicago. And yet we added something like 15, 20% new square footage of office buildings, all kinds of new uh, residential dwellings, apartments and condominiums and single family homes. So it was really trying to understand uh, the motivation for the boom. And my research took me into the dark and murky world of high finance to understand what some of these kinds of finance, the relationship between capital markets or financial markets and the property market were. Mm. Let's set the scene a bit here. This is Chicago in the 2000s, I imagine. Yes, that's the focus. It's really the, I call it the millennial boom. It's really the the decade of the, the 2000s. And the city of Chicago at this time is still sort of reeling from the the loss of manufacturing jobs. I mean, Chicago in many ways is a sort of quintessential post-industrial city, a city that made its name and its you know its development is intricately entwined with the history of man- manufacturing and industrial activity. And since the 70s, this is a pretty common story, saw the hemorrhaging of those jobs and those businesses, first to the suburbs and then overseas. And in the 1990s, the economy really flipped from being one that relied on industrial jobs to one relying on white collar jobs, service sector kinds of jobs. But the location of those jobs was uh, not quite clear whether or not they were going to be in suburban office parks and these kind of you know manicured uh, campuses in the suburbs and sort of far away from the central city, or whether or not they were going to come back to the loop. So that the loop is the CBD of the city of Chicago, and has gone through many transformations and a period of pretty extensive decline, starting in the 1950s, 1960s. 
Um, so this is also a story of the comeback of the CBD. How do capital markets play into this story? That's what's interesting about cities is that they go through these periodic growth spurts. And Chicago's first one was after, well, it was, you know, during a period of, you know, intense land speculation in the late 1800s. And then in 1871, there was a horrific fire, the Chicago fire. And, you know, much of the city burnt down. And after that, 1880s, and sort of the two decades after that, there was a great period of rebuilding. Like a lot of American cities, the 1920s was another boom. That's when a lot of new construction took place, particularly single-family homes on the periphery of the city. Post-war boom as well. Mm. And is employment and population growth connected to the booms at these times? Yes, those previous booms were very much sort of underwritten, if you will, by growth both in the number of jobs and in the number of people moving to the city of Chicago. Mm. In the 1980s, we also see a boom and things begin to change a little bit there. The pace of economic growth is beginning to slow, but at the same time, we see an influx of women into the labor market. Uh, We see new jobs being created in sectors like finance and insurance and real estate, the fire sectors. But in the 1980s, like a lot of other American cities, there were a lot of um, buildings that were built with no tenants in mind. So office buildings that were built speculatively. Uh, Some people refer to these as see-through buildings because they were built, but they weren't tenanted. So we see the beginning of a period where something else is clearly going on here, right? The new construction is not just responding to demand by Mm. occupants and tenants. Fascinating. And so capital markets play a role in this, right? Yes, very much, but different kinds. And I think what's distinctive about the boom of the 2000s is that we see a proliferation of these new securities, these new financial instruments. And they're a little bit complicated to understand, but I have a feeling that most people saw movies like The Big Short, and you're familiar with the financial crisis that was built on the subprime boom and the fact that mortgage securitization played a role in the fact that, uh, you know, basically anybody with a pulse could get (laughs) a mortgage and buy a single family home. Well, there was a parallel movement in the commercial real estate market as well. And there were these commercial mortgage-backed securities. And what these did was they took Um, You know, these were mostly investment banks pooling mortgages from different commercial buildings uh, into a bond, basically, and selling shares of those bonds to different investors. And there was a tremendous demand for these bonds by investors because they were seen as as safe. They were seen as producing a very high rate of return relative to alternative investments. Remember that the Federal Reserve had lowered interest rates to barely anything. So historically safe investments like treasury bills suddenly became worthless to global investors. So they couldn't get enough of these mortgage bonds. Now, what does that have to do with construction, right? How do you connect that to the sort of materiality of the city and, you know, to the cranes and, uh, you know, dirt movers that mm. you see um, in, and, in and a I city? And I guess disconnect it from the population dynamics and the employment dynamics mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Why, why would that make a difference, just having these new instruments to mm. the pace of construction, particularly at a time when you have low or declining in employment change and population change? 
basically the demand for these instruments encouraged banks to lend. They couldn't get their money out the door fast enough. They wanted to make, in fact, risky loans like construction loans. Construction loans are considered some of the riskiest loans that are out there because it's hard to securitize or to um, to secure with collateral a construction loan because you basically have a, a, a building that's in process. It's not quite built, right? It's like maybe half built or a third <laughs> built and nobody wants to take possession of a half-built shopping center or office building. But this the CMBS, this commercial mortgage-backed security, the impact of uh, you know so much demand for these trickled down to the construction lenders. And they were encouraged to make more and more loans. And you had developers who were not looking at employment trends. They were discounting. In my interviews, I would talk to developers and I would say, how do you know it's the right time to build? And, you know, I would I would point out that, you know, the population change isn't so great and uh, that we were actually losing even office using jobs. And, you know, why are you going to put up a new office building? And they would point to the yields from these CMBS instruments as a signal for them to keep building, that somebody's going to continue. There's still a lot of interest in this sector in which I operate. So they built with a kind of uh, confidence that somebody, even if they built and there weren't tenants for them, that somebody would still be interested in the building they were putting up because it was viewed less as a space and place for economic activity to take place in, but and more as a financial commodity. Mm. So these were otherwise risky to secure, but because of the demand for these financial products, the demand pushed down into the riskier end and then in some ways the financial instruments themselves were driving the construction process is that the that's i'm making that argument yeah. and i really do think that yeah these sort of changes on you know different kinds of financial liberalization kinds of reforms and the fact that there was uh, just basically unrequited demand for these instruments that was putting pressure on banks sort of down the food chain. And they felt like this was a time to get in and get out, that they could make whatever loans they wanted because they could turn around and sell them to somebody who wanted those loans, even if the loans were very risky. You're listening to 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney on the web at cityroadpod.org, via Twitter at cityroadpod, and podcasting on Apple Podcast. We're talking with one of my academic heroes, Professor Rachel Weber from the University of Illinois in Chicago. And in the next section, we go back to some old school Rachel Weber and her ideas around urban obsolescence. And if you haven't read Rachel's 2002 paper titled Extracting Value from the City, Neoliberalism and Urban Development, then you should. It's one of my favorite articles. Now back to the interview. Let's talk about some specific cases. 
Who are the key actors at play here and how does this network go together from the financial sector all the way through the construction sector to make this process work and result in the construction of this commercial real estate in the face of dynamics in the city that would say it's probably not the best time to build this real estate? I would say that you have these both extensive networks, but also kind of tightly connected networks. I mean, there's a lot of sort of face-to-face you know, relationships and people know each other in this world of real estate finance. I guess a, a point from my book is that it's never just these sort of disembodied instruments or Wall Street that's imposing a kind of financial order on a place, a city like Chicago. But in order for these spatially intensive yields to flow to distant shareholders and people who have bought these instruments, you need a a, a real sort of thick network of political and sort of fiscal power at the local level. And not all cities have this. People do these things. People, right. Yeah, not the instruments themselves don't have agency. It's people and organizations and institutions that operate within legal frameworks that are using these instruments. So I would say very important sort of at the at the top of the food chain, we do have Wall Street investment banks. So a lot, you know, all the big banks got into this CMBS world, uh, Deutsche Bank and Bank of America and um, yeah, all the big, they call them the street, the street firms, Wall right. Street firms. And they sometimes had divisions in other cities, like in Chicago. Chicago, they would have a, a branch or an, a kind of outlet, but more often than not, they were still located in these kinds of main financial nodes like the City of London and and uh, Wall Street in New York City. And then at the local level, you have a, a huge industry of people that I would just call I would call brokers and all kinds of brokers. There were investment brokers who were the ones that kind of guided um, these Wall Street organizations to specific buildings and to specific banks and to specific specific developers. So they're investment brokers. They're also just sort of real estate brokers who were responsible with tenanting these buildings. So even though many of them were built speculatively, meaning they did not have commitments from tenants to occupy them, the brokers played a very important role in getting these buildings to cash flow because you did need actual tenants, you know, paying the rent every month. And so it was their job basically to go out big game hunting. They had to go and try to attract big corporations who were already in Chicago for the most part and convince them to move from slightly older office buildings to these new buildings that were being constructed on the periphery of the city. So they played a very important role in sort of constructing demand for these new buildings. Almost brokering demand. Very much so. And they did so through, uh, you know, the kinds of techniques that we associate with advertising, um, you know, marketing and promoting and also denigrating exist the existing building stock and trying to convince tenants that they would be more productive and basically happier mm. in these new buildings that were not all that different from the buildings that were built in the 1980s. I mean, there are certain, you know, sort of technical differences between a 1980s office building and a 2000s building, but so much of it really was, it comes down to sort of aesthetics and affect. You're getting very close to mm-hmm. urban obsolescence there, and mm-hmm. I do want to talk to you about that. But it just strikes mm-hmm. me that this is a very compartmentalized system where one group of actors don't necessarily know what's happening in the next 
part of the process. And so Wall Street is very disconnected from the physical assets on the ground and what's happening with those. Is it a compartmentalized process or is there a knowledge across the whole system? There's a lot of information that doesn't sort of translate upwards. And there's a lot of detachment from the buildings themselves. In many ways, the characteristics of the buildings don't really matter so much to the folks up the food chain. I mean, they're looking at specific kinds of operating specifications, square footage, location. But aside from that, they're not that concerned with, you know, the the aesthetics mm. and the design. The, and almost the materiality of the building in that place. It's very calculative mm -hmm. assessment of this building. There is a kind of dematerialization that I think happens in this process. But I think that's when you're trying to govern these assets or invest in these assets at a distance. The local folks know a lot more. There's mm. a, a real premium placed on that kind of local knowledge and the sort of the stuff that happens in the network that is Chicago-based, I think there's much less of that kind of dematerialization, but they have to translate a building and its sort of essential qualities up, up the, the food chain. Wow, that's fascinating. Let's move on. You're quite famous, I think, for your idea around urban obsolescence. I think it's a great idea, and it's good to see you bringing this idea back into play in this work. How does urban obsolescence play out in this story? Well, I think in keeping with some of my earlier work, I argue that obsolescence isn't an innate quality of any kind of a commodity or asset or thing, but rather has to be constructed. Yeah. Right? Maybe you should tell us a little bit about that earlier work. I think it's also about finance in some ways, but I was looking at a particular kind of financial instrument that is a publicly used financial instrument called TIF or tax increment financing. And this is a mechanism that is similar to some of the land value captures mm. uh, instruments that you use yeah. here in Australia and, and, and that are popular in other places for financing infrastructure. You know, so in order for there to be value created in these instruments, the local state, the city government and other actors in, in many ways have to suppress the value of urban property before these TIFs are designated and then sort of pump them up because it's really in that rent gap and the difference between the property value in its most sort of devalorized state and its revalorized state that forms the, the profit, the money that is used by the public sector to give to the private sector to encourage that kind of development. So I, I talked about how, in some ways, the, the incentive to make buildings obsolete exists in a lot of city mm. policies. And is that a discursive process? To some extent. I do think there's a kind of spatial stigmatization that takes place in order for that property to become sufficiently devalorized before it can be pumped up, yeah, yeah. revalorized. Yeah. And how does that play out in this story? Well, it plays out in the story because I'm, in some ways I'm drawing a parallel between these CMBSs, these mortgage-backed securities, and this TIF process. And it's a kind of parallel process that the state, the public sector, is engaging in. And they're basically securitizing future property tax revenues in order to subsidize 
the developers that I was just talking about earlier, the developers who are building office towers in the loop and mixed use complexes, um, you know, where public housing used to be. So TIF is the main way that the city of Chicago sort of engages financially with urban development through a process of subsidization, basically transferring collectively generated property tax revenues to private developers, all in the name of economic development or urban development. So TIF is a, a factor here. And so the obsolescence issue, again, kind of comes into play because that's one of the roles of the local state in trying to kind of create more of a clean slate for new money to come in and sort of circulate throughout the city. Buildings are, as, as much as they can be dematerialized, they're also relatively obdurate <laughs> and material assets. And developers can't build, particularly in an older city built out. I mean, Chicago's an older city for the United States, a city that's built out, a city where there's not a lot of vacant land. Mm. So how are you going to create this sort of fresh waves of financial capital coming into the city? Well, you With need to move some of those buildings. You need to demolish them. So you render them obsolete mm -hmm. in the landscape and then they can be pulled down and rebuilt. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So I think it, it becomes the sort of uh, explanation or alibi for constant redevelopment, for tearing down the existing built environment, you know, sort of seeing it as a kind of detritus or as a kind of garbage or junk. And then once you have that in place, you have public programs like TIF to subsidize the redevelopment and you can and keep the uh, financial capital circulating in place. Mm. Past, present, obsolescence, it's all built in there. <laughs> I think so. It's sort of baked into some of the calculations. And I think that's what I, I get sort of interested in the, in the technicalities, these sort of, you know, sort of micro practices that I think are just important in some ways as the, you know, the, what the Federal Reserve is doing with interest rates. Mm. Rachel, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Dallas. You're listening to 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney on the web at cityroadpod.org, via Twitter at cityroadpod, and podcasting on Apple Podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time. Mm -hmm.